welcome to episode 15 of Life and Life Only. This is just going to be a brief introduction. First of all, thanks for the feedback on the Douglas Valentine interview last time out. Since then, I've actually done the audiobook of his book, The CIA Has Organised Crime, and uh, I mean, mind-blowing isn't even the word. If you want to know really how the world works, it's probably not going to enhance your view of the world as a beautiful place, let's say, but uh, as I always say, there's plenty of beauty in everyday life. I just don't think that the people at the top are contributing too much to that. Anyway, I will leave that with you. So this episode, I just wanted to do a brief introduction because this is actually a recording from 2017 and I've been kindly allowed by my good friend Julian Charles of the mindrenew.com website and podcast to use this for my show. I've appeared on Julian's show many times originally in 2014 and I'm eternally grateful because he basically gave me my start in podcasting and Julian and I at the time we did this 2017 we we thought it was probably the best talk we'd done and we possibly still think that as well although we've done some good ones in the interim this fits very nicely with life and life only because what we were looking at was the ability of music to dispense truth both inner and outer. And that, of course, is the key to life and life only, this um, complement between your own truth and the truth of the big bad world out there. Now, one of the things that really enhanced the original version of this was the inclusion of music clips, because we refer to tons of great music in this talk. Now, Julian quite rightly took it down as the current climate, or the climate over the last few years, has been well, rather harsh, let's say, in terms of copyright strikes for podcasts and YouTubers as well, in terms of music. I always say it's such a big joke because we are essentially giving them free publicity, (laughs) lots and lots of it. Anyway, I'm not going to beat that drum again. As you will hear, I've left in a little bit of the preamble from 2017, although I cut some of it as well. But it's nice and conversational. Julian and I established a good rapport many years ago and that's carried on in order for you to fully get the most out of this talk in the show notes you will find links to not all but i would say the majority many many of the songs that we reference there's links to those and i've included the blog post that inspired this talk in the first place i think without the music it still works as a conversation you can still enjoy it so if you're in the gym or traveling on public transport and you're not able to access all the links while you're listening i think you'll still enjoy it but you know if you're at home for example and you're able to open those links while you're listening i think it's it really will uh, enrich the experience for you just one final comment really julian mentions at some point that a lot of the ideas from the late 60s period let's call it the hippie period i'm using that as a strictly neutral term by the way I'm generally a great supporter of the hippies. I believe that at the time they got somewhat co-opted as these groups tend to. But uh, yeah, that late 60s period, really what Julian and I call the alternative media, which was originally called the truth movement, which again is referenced in this conversation, which emerged in the aftermath of 9-11, really. A lot of the ideas are very, very similar. So in one sense, we are recycling some ideas but i think they're very telling ideas you know about power how it corrupts about people's faith or otherwise in um the powers that be or the powers that shouldn't be are they out for our own interests 
I think Julie and I, <laughs> you'll probably understand our position from this podcast. We do have these informal talks. I'm going to say it was a bit more structured than maybe Julian says in his introduction, because we prepared a lot of uh, these music clips. So, yeah, it's basically music, but it's lots of our ideas, some tangents in all the right places about, um, you know, the search for the elusive truth, which is what Life and Life Only is all about. Anyway, I'm going to stop rambling and let you get on with listening. Uh, there won't be an outro to this, but I will see you soon for the next episode of Life and Life Only. So I'm going to cut to Julian Charles of The Mind Renewed back in 2017. All right, enjoy. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And as that introductory music begins to fade, which I'm going to have to say something about in a few minutes, uh, we welcome back to the programme Anthony Rituno, who has joined us several times before over the lifetime of TMR, for another one of our, well, very unstructured, but hopefully interesting informal chats. I didn't know what else to call it. But um, for those of you who don't already know, Anthony is a teacher, blogger and free thinker originally from the UK, but now living and working in Spain, in Madrid. And just to give people who haven't experienced this before an idea of the kinds of things that we generally talk about, we've uh, previously delved into things like uh, psychology and conspiracy theory, comedy and the so-called truth movement, and advertising and propaganda, things like that. So we're going to add to all of that what we're going to talk about today, which, um, well, here we go, we're calling it Blue Suede Truths. <laughs> mm. um, Anthony, welcome back to The Mind Renewed. Hi, Julian. How are you doing? I do well. We'll just tell your listeners straight away that Blue Suede Truths was your title, so you get the you get the credit slash blame for it. So. <laughs> yes, indeed, the blame. Quite. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you. It's been a while. It has. A year and a half, I believe, since we actually last had one of these chats. Mm. Um, a heck of a lot's happened here. I mean, the two big things that happened here is a flood. Our front two rooms were flooded, and uh, we've had a baby since then, so the time has actually flown. Um, yeah. So what's happened to you then in, the, in that time? I know the last time we spoke, you were going off to South America with a guitar and a pair of pants or something. <laughs> How yeah. did that go? Oh, it was lovely, yeah, yeah. I went to Colombia and Ecuador. Wow. We were all thinking while we were in Colombia that it was a good idea we went now because I think in five years, Colombia will be discovered, so to speak. Not that people don't know about it, but I think people are a bit afraid to go there. And the prices were still very reasonable when I went in 2015 and it was 
lovely country and um, so much to see. Yeah, and then Ecuador. I spent most of the time when I was Ecuador sort of bus lagged. No, what's the word? Uh, I spent about five days on buses oh, going between uh, the Bogota, the capital of Colombia, and then the Ecuadorian border. So I remember about Ecuador is feeling kind of car sick, <laughs> but it's still a lovely country. Yeah, some amazing views and things. And you took your guitar with you, did it, on those journeys? I can't remember. I think <laughs> I might have left it knowing that within about 48 hours I'd locate someone else with a guitar because that's what musicians tend to do. <laughs> so yeah. I may not have taken it in the end. But, uh... Oh, dear, you really have broken that image there of this romantic travelling if you didn't take it with you. Yeah, it was a bit more romantic when I was younger. It was a bit... I found uh, I wanted more and more comfort. I couldn't quite hack it the way I used to. Well, I'm um, talking about being a musician. Is there uh, something you want to say about that music we started with? It's called The Day. Yeah. Presumably it will form part of an album, because I know you produced an album before. It was originally on the album that I made last year, but then I felt like it didn't really fit. So I've actually lifted it for my second album, which I'm recording now. And I thought we could use that one because it was sort of on along the lines of what we're talking about. It's Basically about sort of mental health slash mental illness, quite personal song, and it's me sort of exploring certain sides of myself. So I'll have another album out sometime this year. Mm. Well, I enjoyed your last one that you mm. kindly sent to me. Uh, can people get a hold of a copy of that? Um, I don't have any CDs at the moment. I got a certain number printed because I had, a, had an album launch in Madrid last year. So I had a certain amount and gave them all away free. But obviously there's a link all right, so if I could put a link then and people could actually download each of the tracks, could they, to listen to them? Yeah, it's a website called bandcamp.com, which is probably oh, yeah. the best one for promoting your music online. So Yeah, yeah, Dissident Profits are on there. Yeah, yeah that's right. Then I use SoundCloud and all that kind of thing. Okay, well, as I said, at the top of the show, we're going to be having another one of these informal chats about a quite a vaguely defined subject area. And that's deliberate, because it's not an interview. This is a chat. And each time we choose a deliberately broad area to talk about in this unstructured way, because uh, it's just good to have that freedom to explore ideas without necessarily knowing exactly where you're going to end up in the conversation. So um, our vague subject area today is what we're calling, okay, blue suede truths. So enough mm -hmm. of that. So it's going to be about music obviously, but really the power of music to affect change. We're only going to just scratch the surface, of course. Mm. So that's two things, really, two perspectives, change in the outside world and change on the inside world, our own inside world. So music looking outward and seeking to bring back change in the world at large and music looking inward and seeking to affect change within us in our inside world, so to speak. Mm. Okay, so let's turn then to this subject and we're going to start off with uh, your blog post which is what kicked this off so the power of music to affect change inward and outward change mm -hmm. and i suppose a fair amount of what you're going to say today is going to be based on this interesting blog post that you published on new year's eve over at freethinker 75 so do you want to tell us yeah. briefly what the blog post is and why you bother to do it really it was actually uh, i proposed to you that we do this talk I started writing you an email, and then the email just got longer and longer and longer, and it went to about 10 pages, and I thought, well, Julian's not going to want to read this. So I just thought, well, I haven't written my blog post for a while. So I did it, and it took, uh, yeah, quite a lot of time. It was sort of a spin-off from the truth comedy thing. I started to think, well, music is as powerful as comedy to express truths. I talked for a while, and then, I'm, then I've got a list of about 20 songs, and I've put links to all of them, and I've put a few of the lyrics as well. And mainly my motive is just to try and promote some amazing music through the years and obviously make people think. I mean, that's what you're trying to do, and that's what we're always trying to do during our conversations. 
And I know that I'm a musician and you're a musician as well. So I thought um, we should do something about music. Okay, so we've decided that we're going to categorize this in various ways so that it's not just a sort of a continuum of different examples. And so the first category that we've hit upon is the power of music to affect outward change in the area of war stroke propaganda, that sort of area. So um, this is your section. I know you have various examples you want to share with us. Um, So off you go. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, war is something that's been, I guess, a preoccupation with me from a certain age, because just the idea that we just grow up to think it's so normal and it's just all around us. And I think the way people look at it is, well, if it's always there and it's on TV and people are talking about it in a serious way, then it must be justified. I guess I've been through a kind of lefty phase of just war is bad and that's the end of it. Whereas I think you need to examine it a bit more and, and think about, well, why? Is it just a foreign policy thing? Is it just a money-making thing? And obviously it's a mixture of all those things. But, um, yeah, I'm just going to go through a few songs. This is roughly chronologically. Uh, this is a song called Old Man Atom from uh, 1950. This is a good example of using a little bit of humour. He uses a few puns. I'll just give you a few of the lyrics. It goes, whether you're black, white, red and brown, the question is this, when you boil it down, to be or not to be, that's the question. And then later on, I hold this truth to be self-evident that all men may be cremated equal. So listen, folks, here's my thesis, peace in the world or the world in pieces. And that was actually written by a newspaper man. So uh, you can see like some neat puns in there and everything. Another one is by uh, Donovan, who I'm sure you've heard of in the 60s. And this is a song called Universal Soldier. Have you ever heard of this one? Yes, I have. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And again, uh, some amazing lyrics. I mean, really, the reason I put the lyrics on my blog post is to try and highlight it, because I wonder always how much people listen to lyrics. He's five foot two and he's six foot four. He fights with missiles and with spears. He's all of 31 and he's only 17, been a soldier for a thousand years. And he knows he shouldn't kill and he knows he always will. Kill you for me, my friend, and me for you. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war and without him all this killing can't go on. So obviously this is trying to talk to the soldier, basically, and saying, well, you're killing, but in the name of who, you know? You had a great example. Um, It's actually a song I didn't know. Mm. To my shame, actually, by uh, Country Joe and the Fish. Yes. Um, I feel like I'm fixing to die. Is that what it is? That's it, yeah, yeah. When I saw that, I thought how powerful that was. Um, The irony of it is really striking. And, you know, I was looking at the video YouTube of that performance, and what really struck me about it is the fact that the whole melody and arrangement was so upbeat, so sort of Mm. had a real country feel about it, almost like a... Yeah, yeah, sort of a campfire song for Boy Scouts almost, you know, (laughs) sing-along kind of thing. And the crowd was indeed participating in the simplicity of this music but the irony of course is the contrast with the lyrics which are just so painful Mm -hmm. and what really interested me about it looking at the video was seeing the faces of the people in the audience of the participants really because they were taking part as well Mm -hmm. and you could see some people were just not taking part presumably they were thinking others were quite joyfully taking part and i noticed some were slowly shaking their heads not a shaking of heads to say i disagree but more like isn't this incredible? Isn't this so true? And I thought, wow, this is really touching people in that mm. way. It's a great song. Yeah, well, they always say that Americans don't get irony, but obviously Country Joe had a fairly good uh, handle on it. Absolutely. Yeah, the recording I sent you, or the video I sent you, is from Woodstock, yeah. but you have to really try and picture the scene. I mean, it was a three-day festival in upstate New York in 69. Very muddy, substances going around, so you don't know exactly what state people are in. 
I mean, it was an incredible time. You know, it was 1969. You'll never a time that will never be repeated because you had peace and love on one side, but then you had the shadow of Vietnam, this yep. TV war going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it just was so powerful, like you say. And he chose to make, as you said, a jaunty, upbeat song full of irony. And again, some lyrics, I mean, amazing stuff. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. Come on, Wall Street, don't be slow. There's plenty of good money to be made supplying the army with the tools of the trade. And then my favorite, this is the last verse. Come on, mothers throughout the land. Pack your boys off to Vietnam. Come on, fathers, don't hesitate. Send your sons off before it's too late. Be the first one in your block to have your boy come home in a box. And, of course, that last one is uh, mocking an advertising slogan, you know, when they say, be the first person to own uh, so-and-so. Yeah. I mean, amazing stuff. It is. And there's something there about the machine of war, isn't there? Yeah. Connecting it, you know, with making money out of war. When did you say the propaganda to do with war, too? Mm. And this is something I'm hoping that I'm going to be speaking to Graham McQueen about, because mm. he's done some work on this. And actually, weirdly enough, comparing the machine of war in the human world with the machine of war in the ant world and the similarities and differences then what we can learn from that so i'm really looking forward to that conversation it should be very interesting Uh, and when you think of war as a machine even i haven't looked into it in a great deal but when you begin to think of it in that way it kind of makes more sense doesn't it because i think of the peace movement generally reaching back you know all these decades saying how you know we've got to change people's minds we've got to change this and that and yet it rolls on Conceiving it in terms of the metaphor of a machine makes a lot of sense of that. How do you stop something that has its own momentum? Yeah. That's a tricky question to deal with. I was thinking that looking at the bed-in of John yeah. Lennon and you, you, one of their first ones, I think it was the, the film yeah. they made, didn't they? Um, it was one of yeah. the links that you sent, and I was uh, having a look at that. And, and so much of what they said back then in, in the late 60s really was, I thought, gosh, we're saying the same sorts of things now <laughs> about yeah. what's going on in the in the world today. So, you know, that metaphor of the machine makes a lot of sense. Anyway, sorry. No, John, John Lennon said quite openly, you know, that he, him and Yoko Ono were trying to sell peace. He understood that things needed to be sold to the public. Yeah. And he said, oh, we want to give an advert for peace as opposed to an advert for war. Mm. But I mean, the other thing in this Country Joe song, there's, there's a line that says, you know that peace can only be won when we've blown them all to kingdom come. And again, it's completely Orwellian. And it's exactly what the alt media slash truth movement have been talking about. You know, a lot of these same sort of topics. They're not new things. It's just that with the internet, obviously, we can get the information out a little bit quicker. You have there basically the war on terror, don't you? The same mentality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kill them all off and they won't come and get you. But trouble is, you create more when you do that. Yeah. (laughs) And there's all this talk about peace bombs, the peace bomb uh, meme as well. You wanted to say something about uh, Jimi Hendrix. What what was that? Yeah, well, at the same festival, the Woodstock Festival, I mean, Jimi Hendrix came on, I can't remember offhand, it was something like 3.30 in the morning, or it may have even been 5 or 6 as the sun was coming up. And he decided to play the Star Spangled Banner, and I'm sure most people have heard this at some point. But instead of singing it or playing it in the way it's normally done, he played it with his guitar and started doing wild feedback and he'd play like one line of it, you know, down, 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 and then have all this, this howling feedback. And you suddenly realize after a while that the, the guitar sounds exactly like a machine gun. And all the wailing could be screaming of, you know, villages in Vietnam or, or American soldiers, obviously. I think you have to be there or to watch the video and really have an idea of the context for the power of it. But I mean, it's incredible. And it's a good example of not even needing words either. And cutting straight to the heart. I mean, if you pay the Star Strangle Banner, you're cutting to the heart of the American dream or the American myth. 
So, I mean, yeah, that's very powerful. That's an excellent example, isn't it? Yeah. I hope we can play something of that in the context of this conversation, but I don't know. It might drown us out. Well, YouTube might let you have about four seconds if you're lucky. Yeah, maybe. Down, down, down. <laughs> Just have that, maybe. Yeah. Perhaps that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Name that tune. Yeah. <laughs> and then the pistols did God Save the Queen, of course, in an unorthodox way. Mm. So, <laughs> mm. fascist regime. Tourists are money. And then you've got sort of the other side of the coin is Pink Floyd from the Dark Side of the Moon album, which everyone will have heard of, I'm sure, which actually was in the American charts for nearly 15 years continuously. They took a more sort of sober approach. They didn't really go for the irony so much. And, uh, yeah, there's some lines. Forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. The general sat and the lines on the map moved from side to side. And whenever I hear that, I always think of Blackadder the fourth series of Blackadder, the one with World War One, and you've got this field marshal sweeping toy soldiers with a dustpan and brush. Yeah, he's got this sort of scale of the area of conflict, and then he's sweeping these soldiers away. It's just the idea of how easy it is. But I suppose when you're dealing with big numbers, then what is a few soldiers, you know, to a field marshal, particularly a mad one? I'm not saying all field marshals are mad. <laughs> That's the character played by Stephen Fry, isn't it? No, it was, uh, what's his name, oh. Jeffrey Palmer. He was only in that one episode, but I mean, Stephen Fry again did a great job, sort of the mad general. There's a bit where he says to Blackadder, whatever happens, Captain Darling and I will be right behind you. And Blackadder says, yeah, about 30 or 40 miles behind us. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah, and then on TV, I've just got one other one. The brilliant Frank Zappa. How uh, familiar are you with Frank Zappa? <laughs> as long as a piece of string. Um, I'm aware of his, I think it's called the Yellow Shark production, right. which he actually orchestrated. And was, it was performed, I think it might even have been at the proms over here at one point. I like that. I thought that was very inventive. Oh. And I've seen some of his performance on video, but I'm not sure that I would call myself an aficionado. <laughs> well, he's made like uh, 80 albums, so it's hard for anyone to really... Avoid him. He, he was very, very eccentric. He made, uh, I think, two albums of just him playing guitar solos. <laughs> What a character, yeah. I mean, he, he appeared actually on TV for the first time dressed in a suit playing a bicycle pump before he was famous. I love the name of his group, the Mothers of Invention. I've always thought that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, yeah, brilliant stuff. And he, he did one song in particular called I Am The Slime. And again, TV, and again, this is another thing that the alt media talks about a lot, sort of brainwashing of mainstream media. So he has this song, I Am The Slime, and it goes, I'm gross and perverted, I'm obsessed and deranged, I've existed for years, but very little has changed. I'm the tool of the government and industry too, for I'm destined to rule and regulate you. I make you think I'm delicious with the stuff that I say, I'm the slime oozing out from your TV set. You will obey me while I lead you and eat the garbage that I feed you. Your mind is totally controlled, it's been stuffed into my mould, and you'll do as you're told until the rights to you are sold. It's brilliant poetry, isn't it? Yeah, that is very hard-hitting, actually. Yeah, it is. We actually consider what's being said there. Yeah, and Zappa's one of these artists that it really does take a while to get into it, but it's uh, it's a gift that keeps giving, to use a, a phrase. You, you get a bit more out of it every time you investigate it. So Quite. That's one of the characteristics of art, in inverted commas, that we're going to talk about in a bit. Mm-hmm. Talking about things that are hard-hitting in this vein of political anti-war music, um, something that really mm-hmm. struck me... Not that long ago, really, was it wasn't a song. Well, it was a song, but it was the reuse of a song in a different context. And it was that ironic juxtaposition that really hit me. And this was some archive footage of the napalming, random napalming in Vietnam. 
Mm. You know, you just see one house getting bombed and the next one missed and then the next one missed and another one bombed. And it was just horrendous watching this. Yes. Sort of, so random. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's taken from the air. It has this slow motion quality to it because everything's so far away. Yeah. And uh, whoever decided to put a soundtrack to this put California Dreaming by the Mamas and Papas onto that. Yes. And the, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck, really, it's the perfect match to say something yeah. about the horror of that coming from a nation that you know, on the surface would say, no, we wouldn't, of course we wouldn't do anything like that, you know, and it's just, the power of that really struck me. Yeah, well, of course, they're also using, obviously, a song from the time, and it was this thing about having flower power and the Vietnam existing at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's very powerful. It I mean, I found a couple of um, Martin Luther King speeches that were set to music as well. Yes. I don't know if King played music or ever sang or anything, but he certainly had a performer's sense because his speeches i have a dream is the famous one he was very good at starting with a very in a very low voice kind of a sober voice and gradually building up to a crescendo and then bringing it down again maybe a bit like classical music i suppose you know more about that than me but yeah there's definitely cadence to his voice and one of the examples you came up with was i think it was a black preacher who actually sang his sermons i think you mentioned yeah, that's right. I can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah the south of the USA in the 60s. Oh, his name was Clay Evans, I remembered now. Uh -huh. So maybe it connects with that in some way, realising the power in the gospel context, the black church context of, of singing your sermon. Maybe mm. uh, Martin Luther King was aware of that and knew some aspect of that in his oratory. Never know. Oh, I imagine, I'm sure. Because, I mean, that reverend was famous in the civil rights movement as a whole, so I'm sure he would have known about that. If you don't mind, I'm going to pose a question to you and your listeners. If you were going to set a King speech to music, would you go for dramatic or would you go for the opposite? What do you think? That is an interesting question. The particular one that you link to and another one that I found both use quite quiet, ethereal sounding music. I think one of them is takes music from the Lord of the Rings. Um, so it has that sort of epic, almost religious quality to it. And that seemed to work extremely well. Mm. Um, I can't quite imagine any other kind of music working in that context, but I may be wrong because you can have some surprises. Yeah. I think there were two I looked at. One of them, yeah, was more ambient, more ethereal, which I thought was more effective. And the other one was, was the kind of stirring strings. Mm. And it kind of made me think of Hollywood because Hollywood, they always do this. They get this sort of very heart-wrenching music. But I feel like they do it quite crudely, and it, it, I feel like it's propagandizing you to feel a certain way, basically. I don't think it really works. I think it's better to have the juxtaposition, as you were talking about before with California Dreaming. Yeah, I, I think that ethereal thing works very well, because it sort of sets it up on a pedestal as being something eternal, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and so that means you are listening perhaps more to what he has to say and regarding it as a kind of monolith of history. So I think that works really well. Yeah, it's powerful. It is. I think that's about all I've got for this part. Okay. There's obviously a myriad of other examples. I mean, when I was doing my blog post, I was thinking, I'm only going to scratch the surface, you know. Exactly. I could write 200 pages and we'd be scratching exactly. the surface. Yeah. So. Well, we said that that's the kind of conversation it is, isn't it? So that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the more introspective power of music. And <laughs> I think... To start with, this is going to seem as if it's not related to what we've been talking about, but actually there are connections, so we'll see how that works. So you know, my understanding, my experience of power of music to affect change on the inside, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, the first thing I want to say is, of course, music is going to impact people 
in very different ways. So I, this is just my personal experience here. Right. So there are a couple of levels here. The first thing is obviously there are pieces that are just so sublime. They're not necessarily beautiful pieces, or, you know, in the sense of pretty, but they are aesthetically engaging. They're technically brilliant, expressively brilliant. They have that X factor of genius, whatever. Mm. They get to you in a deep way. And there are any number of works could be mentioned here. And I'm thinking, you know, from overly famous pieces like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, you know, to something really obscure. This is personal, something like Répon by Pierre Boulez. I think is a fantastic piece. And, you know, those, I, I could have a million pieces in there that fit that category. But what I want to talk about is the other level of things, which is works that have more of a profound effect upon me in the sense of potentially changing my perception. Yeah. Again, this is purely personal, and I'm not actually saying that the pieces I'm going to talk about are necessarily, in inverted commas, great works of art. I mean, they may be, but that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm talking about some examples of things that have affected me. So I want to bring up one example here of something in recent years that's worked this way. A piece by the American 20th century composer Morton Feldman. And this is rather odd. He's mates with John Cage, actually. Yeah. And it's odd because when I was studying music back in the distant day, I actually disliked Feldman's music, and I actually still do dislike a fair amount of it, because um, <laughs> it's nearly all slow, quiet, and dissonant, and you know that combination always struck me as really boring and unimaginative. Mm -hmm. And again, I think a lot of it is. But recently, a couple of pieces have actually affected me quite a lot. One piece called Piano and String Quartet from 1985, so this is really late in his productive life, and another piece called For Philip Guston which is actually getting on for five hours long. It's oh. astonishing. Was that five-hour one, one continuous piece? One continuous piece, oh yeah. And I, I saw a performance of it. It's been taken off the internet now, which was just under five hours, and you could see the people sitting there listening in. And, of course, occasionally they had to go out to the bathroom, come back again, but that was all part of the experience, you know. Yeah. I felt for the performers that they had to go through all of this. But oh. They were very disciplined, and they did do it. And it's a lovely piece, actually. It's a surprisingly lovely piece. Anyway, I first listened to this piece called Piano and String Quartet about three years ago when I was on a walk through a small wood. Mm. I was not expecting to enjoy it. I just thought, you know, I'm curious. I haven't heard his music for years and I haven't heard his later music. So I just, you know, got a copy of it and listened to it on MP3 player. And walking through the small wood, it was spring. The colours were being picked out by the bright sun. And the music impacted me in that context, in a particular way. It's, it's, it's rather difficult to describe. The music itself, maybe I'll play a bit of this in the background, but it's based on a strange broken chord, a piano chord that keeps repeating. So, It's quite a dissonant sound, but the notes are spaced nicely to give a kind of openness to the sound, and the chord gets repeated over and over. But it does change gradually, and the way in which it changes if you listen really carefully, you become aware of it. And one really interesting aspect of it is that a certain note disappears after a while. And because you've been listening to it for such a long time, you think, where's that gone? I want to hear it again. And eventually he brings it back. So on that really minimalist level, you know, you are engaged in listening. And it really did impact me because I want to be careful what I say here. I was going to say it gave me some sort of change of consciousness. That's too grandiose. I don't want to say that. A change of perception while I was listening. It had a sort of otherworldly, timeless quality to the music and therefore changed my perception of the environment around me. So these, I talked about colors and shadows, you know, in the wood. They seem to take on more of an eternal quality, if that makes any sense. You know, normally they're just sort of ephemeral things, aren't they? They're just there, you know, well, that's just a colour, that's a tree or whatever. 
But mm. because the, the music had this repetitive, concentrated aspect to it, it made me feel that the environment that I was in was more eternal and charged with some significance. Now, I'm not saying that he was intending that effect, but that's how it impacted me. Mm. And from my worldview perspective, you know, I immediately started to theologize upon it a little bit, as I tend to do. Yeah. So, you know, I often think it's hard to imagine what eternity could be like. Um, sometimes it's a bit of a stumbling block thinking, well, I can't imagine that, you know, what would a new world be like? What would a new cosmos be like? But you know, I think experiences like this can actually help to sort of kind of reassure you in the sense that there is always more beyond our imagination. And there are times mm -hmm. when we can get a glimpse in that direction by our imaginations being temporarily augmented in, in these ways. So, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I'm not going to say I think Morton Feldman is one of the greatest composers who ever lived. I don't think that's true. And a lot of things I wouldn't want to listen to, but mm -hmm. that really did affect me, as did for Philip Guston, which is another great piece. Mm. You're saying that you're out in nature and you were listening to this. Mm. So in a way, it's still a combination of music and images. It just so happens that the images are being seen by you with your eyes rather than on screen. A nice connection there. Yes, indeed. And of course, music is often described as hypnotic. Is that piece, would you call it hypnotic? Or? I would do, but um, mm -hmm. I want to be slightly careful there because, I mean, it may be the case that in Feldman's mind, he was thinking more in terms of Eastern meditation. That's possible, mm. but that's not how I approached it because of my worldview being different. But there are some aspects of concentration involved in that that connect with me, but in a slightly different way. Because I, yeah. I tend to associate Eastern meditation as more a suppression of the mind, getting away from the mind, whereas a more Christian interpretation would be an augmentation of the mind, you know, bringing you to a, a sense of who you really are, what the world really is, who God really is, you know, clearing away misunderstanding. Yeah. Also, as I say, augmenting imagination. And that, that's the effect it had on me on that day, as you say, quite rightly, because of the things I was walking in, but they were everyday things, but they suddenly seemed different. <laughs> I mean, the music was so different. The music itself is odd. And I suppose that oddness was seeping through into yeah. how I looked at the world. Yeah. I mean, while, while you were talking, I was just thinking... Um, perfect example for me is uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey which is pretty much my one of my favorite films definitely in the top two <laughs> yeah I was just thinking of the Blue Danube Waltz which actually was an accident because uh, while they were trying to think of music Kubrick just had that playing in the background and then he just spontaneously magically he, he found that the music fitted the images perfectly 2001 is timeless, eternal, because it starts with the apes and finishes with the, the star child of the future. Uh, yeah, this sort of eternal quality, as you said, and it really changed my perspective on everything. And I don't even know exactly how, it just I just know that it did, you know. It just made me think in a more expansive way. So I consider that a major piece of work, and I think the music is very important. It, yeah. it absolutely is, yes, I love it as well. And of course, I also love the use of Gilgi Ligeti's music which is used in the wormhole travel that he goes through. Yeah. And also in the end when he appears in, and sees himself in the bedroom, there's music taken from Georgi Ligeti. I think without Ligeti's permission, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, but it works incredibly well because it's just so weird. Uh, yeah, it's quite disorientating, isn't it? It is. The, the sequence you're talking about is when he's going through the Stargate and he's completely disoriented. Stargate. What is going on? You know? yeah. yeah, it's perfect, yeah. So one of the other major categories that we decided to put your blog post into was civil rights, stroke, poverty, social justice. So you've got many examples, actually, from this area of music making. So uh, do you want to say something about that then? 
Yeah, I mean, I've only got 150 examples. I could trim that <laughs> you know, down to four if you want. <laughs> go on then. <laughs> yeah, see yeah. If you can. <laughs> uh, well, really, the main contrast between this and the war and the propaganda is that this one is much more overt. The civil rights movement was criticised at various times for being a little bit earnest, and they even sort of called it lefty, which is incredibly annoying because that's such a silly tag to put on something. It's almost like saying, oh, caring is very naive. Basically, with the civil rights, they wrote a lot of songs about specific issues. You know, they, they weren't interested in veiled messages. They actually wanted to say, this is about this event. The people involved in this, I mean, they were right in the middle of heavy stuff. You know, I mean, their lives are in danger, a lot of these. I mean, these performers obviously predominantly black. There were white people involved in the civil rights movement, but, you know, going on tour for them involved danger and traveling to concerts. I suppose one of the central events was a march on Washington, which was in August 63. And uh, Martin Luther King, as we talked about earlier, did the I Have a Dream speech there. But uh, one thing that always interests me with, with this topic is styles of music and how different styles are used. I think the march on Washington was, it was a melding of gospel and folk mainly. And again, gospel music, which was born in the church, it is perfect because it has that kind of, first of all, it has a slightly hypnotic quality. It's quite euphoric as well. When you've got 10 or 12 people all singing the same thing, but on harmonizing, it's very um, powerful. And it also has that sense of controlled pain about it too, doesn't it? Because you've got the blues notes, which are often very much stressed in there, yeah. which come from that... You know, the twelve bar blues kind of thing with the person with their guitar and the the bottle <laughs> in the hand. Yeah, the bottleneck. Yeah, that's right. So that sort of blues note is very much related to a sense of expressing anguish, isn't it, through music? Mm. And yet, in the gospel context, that's often given a much more joyful presentation. So there's a kind of irony built into the very sound of it, isn't there? Yeah, and then of course you can do sort of uh, hybrids of different genres. You know, you can cross genres. So you can have a little bit of both. But, I mean, some of the titles of the civil rights songs, uh, things like How I Got Over by Mahalia Jackson, I'm On My Way, We Shall Overcome, Freedom Highway, and When Will We Be Paid. The last two there, Freedom Highway and When Will We Be Paid, are by the Staple Singers. And again, if you've never heard the Staple Singers, both you and the audience, you really should. It's fantastic stuff. I mean, amazing singing, very pointed in its own way, but quite uplifting music. Can I just say something about that one called Freedom Highway? Sure. This is 1965. Yes. You know, talking about the blues note, that was one thing that I noticed particularly mm. on that recording. The melody constantly dwells on the blues note. So, like, well, it's like having a, a minor sounding note that's played at the same time as a major chord. So there's a real clash in there. Mm. And if you have that being stressed like at the top of your melody all the time, which is what's going on there, there's that real sense of anguish about it. And yet it's quite an upbeat piece. Yeah. The way it sort of pushes forward all the time has a sense of communal determination about it to get something done, doesn't it? Mm. Well, you notice all these examples we're giving, they all seem to have juxtapositions, as you said, built into them. Mm. So I think what we're finding maybe, I, I hadn't thought about this before, is that maybe that is the most effective way. Rather than worrying about whether it's over or covert or happy or sad, just try and find the mixture. And that seems to be the most powerful. That's what Anthony Frieda does with his art a lot. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. He finds these things that he can juxtapose, and that seems to be the center of what he's doing, and it's obviously mm -hmm. very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think maybe it maybe disorientates the listener, or not disorientates, but it 
makes the listener think, well, I wonder what's going on here. Because that's the, the problem with so much of mainstream culture. It's just so obvious. And so it's all very one dimensional. So I think what we're finding is you've got to disorientate people to some extent. I think it's art that asks a question, isn't it? It poses a question. Mm. As you say, you start to think about it. Instead of being just told, this is bad, this is unjust, mm. you get this contradiction within the art form. You're thinking, what, as you say, what's going on here? What is this perhaps telling me? And then you're engaged. Uh, you become part of the political mm. process at that point. I think that's how it works. Yeah, great stuff. Mm. I'm glad we're finding, uh, we're sort of organically finding a, a meaning for all this, aren't we? I hope so. Are we finding a theme? Well, this yeah. is why we have this kind of conversation, isn't it? Yeah. We yeah, it is. We yeah. our way into different directions and, and hopefully find yeah. something useful along the way. Yeah, we just record nine hours and then you <laughs> you have the pleasant task of getting an hour and a half out of it. <laughs> That's an exaggeration. It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah so we're, we're now kind of in the field of jazz, I suppose. And Nina Simone did this song, Mississippi Goddamn, and some of the lyrics are quite pointed and she's really talking about she said, I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. So there's the religious side. Hound dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat cross my path. I think every day is going to be my last. I don't know exactly what direct danger she herself was in, but she's obviously reflecting something that she was around. And um, kind of leads me on to talking about jazz just briefly, because John Coltrane, of course, is a jazz legend. You all know, tenor saxophonist. He did a tone poem called Alabama, and it was about the bombing of a it was a 16th Street Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. It actually killed four young girls, killed four children. So, I mean, horrible event, tragic. This was done by the Ku Klux Klan, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. I think it was 63, mm. maybe the same year. Could be. Yeah. yeah. And what he did, again, it was very interesting. He called it Alabama, which obviously gave a clue to what it was about. Because without singing, it's quite difficult to know if you're addressing a particular event. And, of course, Jimi Hendrix, we saw, had his way of doing it. So this piece, I don't know whether it's supposed to be one piece or an album, so to speak, but I listen to it as one piece. It kind of sets this sort of slow, reflective, calming mood, but then you'll suddenly have wild clusters of notes, and that was one thing that Coltrane was very known for. He, he pioneered what some people might call psychedelic jazz, this very random, yeah, psychedelic, putting you on another level. And then towards the end of the piece, there's some furious kind of drum rolls building to this big climax and what i took from it is having this calming mood interspersed with this wild saxophone to me it conveys how a surprise attack can happen so everything's okay and then suddenly you're attacked it's very effective in that way you know i don't know exactly what he's thinking but that's how i interpret it well, it's interesting that my interpretation of it is very close to yours. Right, yeah. That does suggest that it is speaking with some precision. Um, I'll have something to say about that in a minute, perhaps. Mm. But when I was listening to at least the section that I heard, I noticed that the saxophone episodes, a lot of them were quite funereal, really. Yeah. As you say, this sort of ominous mood to them. But while that was going on, sometimes you'd have you know tremolo and the piano and drum rolls. And then the drum will become really quite animated. And yet, at the same time, the sax would still continue with this sort of funereal style. Yeah. And I thought similarly, you know, there's this sadness, this lament for what's happened in the sax. Mm. And yet there's this background anger that's building up. This mm. is, again, it's a juxtaposition of contrasts, almost contradictions. But that fits the context that's being described. Yeah. One doesn't even need to be so precise as to say there's an attack about to happen, but just you know the horror and the anger at the same time, it really conveys that very powerfully. It's putting you in a certain state, and then the thinking person can then work the rest out themselves. Mm. It's not really telling you anything 
specific apart from the title you know it allows you to enter some level of experience mm. of you know what i mean some sort of empathy anyway it allows you to do that through the music yeah it's one of the things I think about. Music's often said it's a language, and I think I talked to you about this before. And I'm not really very happy with that because I tend to think that music is a very imprecise language, if it functions as a language at all. I think it does to some extent, but it's very imprecise. And yet it does have a depth to it because it taps emotion. But I think people do too easily talk about it being, oh, you know, it's the universal language. And yet you yourself said you wouldn't know what this piece was about unless it had at least some link to an event. And so Alabama. So, you know, I I just think we need to be careful when people do talk about it as being a language. It's, it's very powerful, but very imprecise. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's inviting you to fill in the gaps really. Yeah. You know, um, well, another, central figure happens to be white as well as a Pete Seeger in the civil rights movement. And he, he came from a musical family and an activist family. So I suppose in a way his path was quite set. His father had actually been invited to set up the music department at the university of California in Berkeley, but then was, uh, what's the word politely asked to leave when he became a conscientious objector. Okay. Yeah. The song I really wanted to talk about was a song called what did you learn in school? And, uh, yeah, maybe hearing it later if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's a great song, actually. And indeed, the version we, we hear later as well. <laughs> well, hopefully. <laughs> no, it's interesting because uh, I don't know whether Country Joe would have heard this, but um, they're actually doing exactly the same thing, although the songs don't sound similar necessarily. But it's this jaunty thing. It's very clever. It's a conversation between a parent and a child. and So it's... The refrain is, what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? And then the child says, uh, I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free, and that's what the teacher said to me. And then I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers pay for their crimes, even if we make a mistake sometimes. And, of course, Iraq 2003 was famously referred to as a mistake, wasn't it? (laughs) I mean, yeah, that is true. That was the word uh, many people have used. And then I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and France, and someday I might get my chance. That's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. I mean, fantastic. And I think this is particularly powerful because of the simplicity of the melody. Mm. It's almost like a nursery rhyme. Mm. It's the kind of melody that you would sing to, you know, a baby on your knee. Mm. And that contrast with what's being talked about there is chilling. Absolutely. Yeah, and for the musicians among your listeners, it's also just three chords as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm all for key changes and yeah. bridges and middle sections, mm. but... You couldn't do it in that context. No, it wouldn't work. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. sometimes you just need a straight ahead. Yeah. No distractions, so to speak. It needs simplicity, mm. total naivety, apparent naivety. Yeah, exactly. It's a childlike thing where, where children just tell you things straight. Their defences aren't up in the same way. So it's almost saying, oh, look at this with a childlike innocence. Yeah. But then it's not naive. Um, the only other thing I wanted to bring up with civil rights was uh, the one and only Bob Dylan. The guy is an incredible enigma. It's very difficult to really know anything about him, even though he's done 50 years of interviews. It's a pity he can't sing, though, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Just for that, I'm going to send you some songs of him uh, singing beautifully. (laughs) Even that was an inspiration, because you're saying, well, this guy's selling all these millions of records, and his songs are really good, and he can't sing. So, (laughs) you know, you may not be totally wrong there. But um, no, the point I wanted to make with him was that he was a good example of a kind of bridge between the over and the more veiled he used to go to the Newport Folk Festival, which was one of the kind of central hubs 
of this activist movement, the change movement. And of course, people will know some of his songs, such as Blowing in the Wind, The Times They Are Changing. And he also did a song called Only a Pawn in Their Game. And of course, chess metaphors are, are fantastic, aren't they? For war and for... Oh, the grand chess board, yeah. Yeah, talking, yeah, exactly, yeah. Talking about how society works. So only a pawn in their game is pretty direct. But then like he kind of grew tired of that. Dylan's a, such a chameleon, he always has been. And I mean, he gets tagged still as a protest folk singer even now, even though more or less he stopped that in about 1964. It's the same way that Sean Connery still gets tagged as James Bond, I suppose. But anyway, now he has this song that I highlighted on my blog post, and it's worth a listen. It's called It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. The title's not really reflected in any of the lyrics, but just a few of the lyrics says, uh, advertising signs that con you into thinking you're the one who can do what's never been done, who can win what's never been won. Meantime, life goes on all around you. And then for them that must obey authority that they do not respect in any degree, who despise their jobs, their destiny, speak jealousy of them that are free, cultivate their flowers to be nothing more than something they invest in. And then slightly more optimistic, you lose yourself, you reappear, you suddenly find you've got nothing to fear, alone you stand with nobody near, when a distant trembling voice unclear startles your sleeping ears to hear that somebody thinks they really found you, which is for me, is wonderful. But I love the bit, you lose yourself, you reappear, you suddenly find you've got nothing to fear. Because that's actually a journey I went through. I did realise I'd been living in fear, as I think everybody does. And some fear is justified, but a lot of it I don't think is. So this line, you suddenly find you've got nothing to fear, that really hit me. Mm. So, uh, yeah, amazing stuff. Just in that song alone, it's got something like 12 verses. There's so much in there. I mean, you could almost spend uh, a few months or a few weeks just analysing it. But then, in a way, you don't really need to because you just let the words speak for themselves. You don't really need to rationalise what you think about it. It's just, it has this overall effect. This is what you were talking about earlier. And that's the power of poets, basically. They just put these images. Like, mm. I mean, another of his famous lines is, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, which to me is just saying you don't need someone to tell you what to think. Which actually does connect with what I want to talk about, this uh, being told what to think in the area of music particularly, and art. So I suppose this is an appeal to critical thinking, but it's going to be a very circuitous journey to get to what I want to say about it, or how, how that connects to critical thinking. But it is an area that's bothered me for a long time. And it has to do with this question that comes up time and time again, which is, what is music? What is art? And it's the kind of question that comes up, you know, in art courses ad nauseam. And I often feel that the question is not really very helpful. And I think it's actually quite symptomatic of so much that's wrong with the world of the arts, that that question is even asked. Mm. Um, it's a source of confusion and something that the establishment in the world of art is quite happy to keep in place. It speaks of an abuse of power in the arts. Just that question, what is music, what is art? It's going to take some explaining. I'll have a go. Um, so I'm saying we need to question the question itself. I think the question is assuming something. It's taking something for granted. It's assuming that there exists some kind of definition of art or definition of music that's out there or mm -hmm. up there, you know, in some kind of platonic mathematical space, you know, that transcends time and space. If only we could work out what that definition is, then yeah. we'd have that heavenly list of bullet points that we could say, oh, yes, this object I'm seeing or this sound I'm listening to fits these bullet points. Therefore, it's art. We know what it really is. 
I think that's how most people think about this question, and I think it's false. Now, there may be people out there who are going to disagree with me. That's fine. Mm. Um, and I say that because as soon as you attempt to draw up a definitive list of characteristics, beauty, proportion, technique, whatever it is, mm. you find that along comes some other work of art which gets widely acknowledged as art, and it doesn't fit one or more of those you know the art world the music world they're littered with examples like that something's considered to be art at one time place and it's considered to be barbarous at another you know yeah. a, a really classic example of this is the musicians often come up with this performance of Stravinsky's Ballet the Rite of Spring 1913 half the audience loved it half the audience hated it and there were objects being thrown at the performers you know and one of the performers, this is a quote from, said, uh, everything available was tossed in our direction, but we continued to play on. <laughs> and yet now, you know, it's universally recognized as being a masterpiece. So I think we need to change the question. And I've actually found this quite liberating in a number of ways. I'll explain in a minute why that is. Instead of asking what is art, what is music, I suggest that we need to ask why do we call such an object? Why do we call such a collection of sounds music or art? Mm -hmm. What's actually going on when we do that? So it's less a sort of ontological thing in terms of being, but more a sociological one. You know, why is this happening? So I'm saying if we've shifted that focus, we're asking what's going on when an object gets referred to as art then I think that typically certain things are happening with respect to that object. It's being cherished by growing numbers of people. It's being copied. It's influencing the works of other people. It's being analysed. Articles perhaps being written about it. Books are being written about it. It's enjoying some sense of longevity from one generation to another. It has a, a certain serendipity about it, which you actually mentioned to me yourself. It, the kind of layers of, of appreciation. You come back to it again and you think, oh, I didn't hear that before. I didn't see that before in it, you know. So all these things are happening to this object. It's being valued by people as out of the ordinary, as increasing numbers of people come to regard it that way. So we can therefore begin to say it's a cultural phenomenon, it's part of culture, and then we just label that art. You know, it's not like there's some definition of art that's out there beyond what I've just said. These things are happening with respect to that object, and we label that art. We could label it what we like, but it is something that's happening that is out of the ordinary. Now, if we could just hold on to that thought. Okay. I said to you that I wanted to mention John Cage. Yeah. Not because I'm a huge John Cage fan. In one way, I am. I find him very funny and thought-provoking. But in terms of being a composer in the way that most people understand a composer, then, you know, I don't rank him particularly, although he did write what most people consider to be music. He wrote a lot of piano, prepared piano music. That's where you, you take nuts and bolts and put it in the, in the strings of the piano to make it sound more like a, a gamelan, you know, a collection of percussion instruments rather than a piano. Anyway, he wrote a lot of percussion music. But he also wrote some very odd stuff deliberately, and you know, a lot of it's quite funny and things. But a lot of what he did is very philosophical in nature and connects with what I've just been saying. And I find some of that philosophy quite interesting. And, of course, mm. he's famous for the uh, the silent piece, yeah. <laughs> which is called 4 minutes 33 seconds. Um, the only reason why it's called that is because of when it was first performed in 1952, the, the pianist David Tudor played it for that length of time, so it got called that. Uh, and it's very funny. It's daft. I've got the score of it somewhere, actually, and it literally is a piece of paper, and it just says, movement one, tacit which of course means silence <laughs> movement mm -hmm. two tacit movement three tacit and you can play it as long as you like on any instrument you know it's it's, it's crazy yeah. it is on one level it's crazy 
But why? The question is, and this is where it becomes philosophical, mm. why is it crazy? And the answer is, well, it's because it's not music, is it? It's just not music. Ah, but is it? <laughs> you start a dialogue in your in your head, and the piece is inviting you to. And I've got a kind of uh, mock dialogue here, so you could imagine somebody saying, "Well, you know, it's not music, is it? Ah, but is it? Well, no, there's no sound, so it's not music. Uh, just a minute, yes, there is, because there's always sound in the auditorium. There are coughs and sneezes, and people wriggle in their seats, and perhaps open up a sweet wrapper. Yeah, yeah, but they're not musical sounds, are they? Oh, but they're percussive sounds, aren't they? I mean, a cough is... What's the difference between that and, say, a woodblock being hit with a beater? Oh, yeah, but a woodblock would have some rhythm to it. Yeah, but how many strikes do you need for a rhythm? And uh, what if there's a cough followed by a sneeze, followed by another sneeze? Isn't that rhythm? Mm. But it's not intended, is it? The composer hasn't intended that. It just happens. Isn't it? How much control must a composer have? I mean, after all, when an instrumentalist plays a piece, you know there are things that happen when the person's playing their flute or whatever that the composer didn't directly intend. You know, perhaps a, a note lasted longer or was louder than the composer wanted, but the composer accepts a certain degree of indeterminacy in what comes out. So how about a lot of indeterminacy, such as an auditorium full of people coughing and sneezing? You see, <laughs> you can go on with that ad infinitum. And the point of it is, this is essentially a philosophical piece, it is basically insisting that there are no metaphysical criteria for art or music. Cage said, basically, there's no distinction between art and life. Now, he left it at that, but I think that's quite helpful because it's not to say there's no value in anything. What it is to say is to neutralise this term art, in inverted commas, neutralise this term, you know, sort of art music, in inverted commas, as if it's some monolith coming down from heaven, or, or coming down from an authority telling us what is art and what is not art, and takes me back to my argument, where I think we need to dispense with the question of what is, yeah. because it's continuous with life. And so we're back again to this, what I think is the better question. What's going on when objects generally get referred to as art? They're being cherished, they're being copied, they're influential, they're analysed, they're serendipitous. That all boils down, therefore, to this object is being found to be interesting. Mm. And now that I find liberating, because I couldn't care less if something's called art or called a great piece of music. All I care about is whether it is interesting or not. That is the only thing that's of any value. Yeah. So if I walk into a concert hall, and there's a program there, and it says such and such is being played, and by the very fact that it's on the, on the program, I'm being told by the music establishment, these are important pieces. Or I walk into an art gallery, and mm. there are all these installations in different rooms. By the very fact that those things are there in those rooms, it's being told to me by the establishment, this is art. And I can say to myself with this way of thinking, okay, it's art, so what? Just a word. Everything is potentially. <laughs> what I'm looking for is something interesting that fascinates me, that engages me. And I had a particular example of this recently. We went to a gallery in Liverpool full of installations, therefore art, you know, was on display. But I'm going to say it was drivel. Mm. All of it was absolute drivel. And we went into one room where there was a pair of headphones suspended from the ceiling with a little wooden stool beneath and there was this po-faced security person who was on guard, you know, as if I was going to run off with these objects. Yeah. And there was no indication as to whether these headphones were the artwork or anything else in the room. So I decided, well, I, I resent being told that this is art by the gallery. Mm. So I deliberately walked around praising the electricity sockets in the wall. I looked out of the window and praised the traffic in the road as if that was, you know, part of the so-called art that was intended. Um, what I was basically saying was, there's nothing of interest here. 
Mm. And I, I find this way of approaching it liberating because I don't have to kowtow to what some establishment tells me. I don't have to be duped by you know what I think is often you know state-sponsored artists, state-sponsored art institutions that are playing a kind of emperor's new clothes game. Because they've got a vested interest to say, oh, you know, you say this isn't art because you're just ignorant. You don't understand it, which I think is an attack on critical thinking, frankly. Um, no, I say it is art. I agree with you. It is art. But that says very little. I say it's boring, unoriginal. No one in their right mind would copy, analyze or write about that, you see. So this is not a recipe for Philistinism. You know, I, I, all I'm saying is I think we should make our decisions doesn't mean we can't be wrong. Um, I think there's too much of this in the truth movement scene, actually. Too much of a rejection of things because, oh, it's supported by the state, therefore it's bad. And I can be wrong in my judgments. I've been wrong in the past. I appreciate things now that I once rejected. And I've learned from people who are supported by the establishment. You know, they're not automatically wrong. It doesn't yeah. mean it's bad art just because it happens to have been funded by the state. But it does mean that I'm free to exercise critical thinking with respect to this without being told this is art. Because it doesn't mean anything. I reserve my judgment. I learn. I remain open. But I reserve my judgment. So yeah. you know, I, I found this a very helpful way of thinking about this. And it connects to the wider issues to do with the truth movement of thinking for yourself, but mm. being prepared to learn at the same time. And I think that's very important. I mean, I suppose regarding the art gallery, the counter would be, well... It's easier to collect things together in one place and then happen to call it an art museum. I think it's just making it more convenient. I mean, they could call it an art, art in inverted commas, maybe. But. Well, I mean, I don't object to it in principle. My point is that if I'd walked mm. in there and seen an installation that really interested me, mm. something would have struck me in some way that I would have had an aesthetic response to. I could have said, wow, isn't it amazing that somebody has produced something like that? Or... There was an emotional reaction to it, other than simply, this is rubbish. I do think there's a lot that's passed off as art, and yeah, it's art, so what? But that's passed off as valuable, just because an establishment tells us that it is. And if you don't agree, you're, you're an idiot. I think that whole mentality is, is mm. deeply objectionable. Um, and I think people need to feel free to reject without feeling they're Philistines for doing so. You know, I think the wool is pulled over our eyes in many cases by the art establishment. Deliberately. Mm. I think the art and the music establishment are quite known for being quite snobby. Absolutely. I haven't had much dealing with classical music, but I had a friend who was a classical guitarist, and he left the scene just because he said it was very elitist and quite snobby. And, of course, art's a tricky one because it is so broad. Well, you're likely to find people who are being very pretentious or ostentatious. Absolutely. That's right. But that's, that's such right. a huge problem. I think the broader the topic... It's almost an open door to anyone to call what they're doing art, in a way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I'm going to repeat yeah. that there's a temptation at this point to say oh, it's establishment art, in inverted commas, therefore it's bad. And I mm. just think that is also wrong, because yeah. I could give you a list, as long as my arm, or both arms and legs, of pieces which have been somehow mm. or other supported by some state somewhere across the world, and yet they are masterpieces. Well, there's a certain podcaster um, who we both know who has a philosophical podcast. He's got to the stage where he's got this word statist, and he's got this way where he can reject anyone to facilitate his argument who's anything to do with the state. Mm. But, uh, I mean, okay, you could say what you like about the rights and wrongs of anarchy or the advantages and disadvantages of it, but for the time being, you've got to live uh, with the state. It's like if you were against money, as the zeitgeist people are, and then you have a go at anyone who's using money. 
Well, you know, until we get out of a money economy, you're going to be using money. So Yeah, I mean, I've come across people who say, mm. you know, well, how come you like the music of Wagner when he was such an objectionable man? Mm. It's ridiculous. The two yeah. things are separate. Precise example of what we're talking about would be the music of Pierre Boulez. Now, a lot of people don't like his music, but I think he was a musical genius. There's a lot of his music I really mm. highly value. And yet he received millions and millions of euros from the French government for his Ercam Center in Paris. And he's a very state-sponsored individual. But does yeah. that mean that what he did, therefore, was not valuable? It just doesn't follow. Yeah, I mean, you've got, to live in, you've got to live in the environment that you're in. And if we're in a money economy and a state system, then we've got to live with that. You know, and you're not a hypocrite if, if some action you do is within that. You can't say that you're you're immediately a, a hypocrite. Mm. That's one of the problems with the alternative media. And Tom Secker, I know you've had on your show a number of times, he's very good at, at showing the limitations of the truth movement. I think he goes a bit far sometimes, but that's another issue. Mm. Mm. And we're, we're both agreed on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of happened to me. I think that when I look back sort of five or six years, I kind of think, well, I went from being someone who believed the mainstream, not really rationally, or fully consciously, but just because I hadn't thought of an alternative to someone who watched Alex Jones documentaries and then more or less believed them. But then you're doing exactly the same thing. You're believing an alternative blindly instead of a mainstream view blindly. Well, I was going to say about Alex, actually, I, I've always had a bumpy relationship with, with <laughs> Alex in that his style has always grated. So that when I was watching his documentaries, part yeah. of it, I was thinking, yeah, you got a point there. And then part of it was Oh, Alex, why are you putting it like that? You're making yourself not credible by overstating things and being so brash. And so I've always had that slight discomfort when I've looked at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, should we get back on topic, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, so we've touched on quite a lot of what you might call avant-garde art scene. And you wanted to say something about the crossover between the avant-garde and the popular scene. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, George Harrison famously referred to avant-garde as avant-garde clue. I think it was him anyway. He's attributed with that, but he definitely uh, did some avant-garde things. But I think the bridge between the world that you were talking about of Cage and um, what I wanted to talk about, which is the Beatles, um, again, a subject I know quite a bit about, is uh, Yoko Ono, because she worked with Cage before she met John Lennon. And then she brought this avant-garde sensibility in. But one of the differences between Lennon and McCartney, because McCartney was also very avant-garde, but he had the commercial instinct. And all I'd really say about things like the Cage piece and, you know, Andy Warhol's Empire State film, which was, what was it, five hours or whatever it is. <laughs> and John Lennon actually did another one of him smiling and slowed down to last about an hour and a half. <laughs> and I mean, you know... <laughs> I think I can admire the idea without spending an hour and a half watching. Precisely, yes. Yeah, but what they did was very clever. One of the magic things about the Beatles is they had this kind of more wild character of John Lennon and then the more commercial, more conventional Paul McCartney and also George Martin, who, you know, was a producer who died last year. And uh, a few pieces I wanted to highlight was Tomorrow Never Knows. Again, it'd be nice to play a bit of this. Pretty famous piece from 66. And it's not a normal piece anyway, because they took the Indian idea of having one chord. So the whole song is in the chord of C, and it has this drone hypnotic effect. But then they added uh, what were called tape loops. Now, of course, in those days, to make tape loops, you actually had to loop the actual yes, tape. That's right. Whereas now tape loop is just a word, you know, and do it using a computer without needing any loops at all. 
And also in the song uh, Being for the Benefit Mr. Kite, which is from Sergeant Pepper, which is going to be 50 years this summer. That was basically a fairly conventional song. The lyrics were actually taken from a poster that John Lennon found in uh, Seven Oaks. Fairly conventional song, but then they took samples of a steam organ and basically cut them up and threw them in the air and put them back together in a random way. So that's a nice uh, juxtaposition with what's fairly commercial song on a very commercial album. I find that a particularly interesting example because that's mm. the kind of thing where I think some people might say, well, that's a stupid thing to do, to introduce mm. some randomness into your composition. You're relinquishing control. But mm. actually, how much control are you really relinquishing there? Because you're keeping the same sounds, you're just manipulating them using a chance technique. So the overall effect is going to be pretty controlled, but there's just some level of indeterminacy which creates interest. And I find that connecting, I mean, a British composer called Harrison Birtwistle, a lot of people will have heard of, that's actually a big part of what he does. He talks about a magic by which he means there are certain sounds that he could create by using his imagination that he thinks would just create cliches. And so at certain points he says, I'm going to relinquish control to a degree to produce a magic, something that I would never think of myself. But it's still highly controlled. It yeah. might be that he's got three notes that he's going to manipulate, and he won't go outside those three notes, but he might, just for the sake of argument, you know, for the sake of illustration, throw dice to choose which note is sounded at which point. So you don't quite know which is coming up, but yeah. it'll always be those three notes. So it's actually highly controlled, and yet there's a chance element to it. So it's fascinating to find that the Beatles were doing something similar there. A definite yeah. crossover, obviously, with the so-called avant-garde. I think the avant-garde is dead now, but that's a, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember when I was first learning to play the guitar, uh, I saw a section on improvisation in a book I had, and it was actually teaching you to improvise. And immediately I thought, well, what are you talking about? It's a contradiction. Hmm. But it's not really because, say, improvising on a scale would be taking the eight notes of the scale or whatever it is, and then improvising within that. And it is actually quite effective. Depends what you're trying to do. If you are trying to reach an audience and introduce something unusual, then I think the mixture of a melodic song and sort of psychedelic or avant-garde ideas works pretty well. I mean, the only other piece I wanted to mention from the Beatles was called Revolution 9, which uh, if there's any Beatles fan listening, they're probably rolling their eyes at the moment because it's not one of the most popular because it's actually not really a Beatles song. It's John Yoko and George Harrison, but it found its way onto a Beatles album. And it's a supposedly random eight-minute piece with must be more than 50 different loops or bits put in. And then there, there's three of them are all talking basically gibberish, gobbledygook. I mean, it's real language, but it's all very random. I think they were just reading from a book or something. But uh, I actually found out this, this was a major revelation I found someone who'd actually broken it down and I found that it was actually structured and it's an eight minute piece and most people will know the number nine, number nine, this famous thing they, they found. But actually each minute is supposed to represent something different. And actually if you listen with speakers and you try and think of the 60s because it was made in 68 and as we said earlier with flower power and Vietnam and all these things happening at the same time, you can actually hear the sound of revolution and again, it's not clear exactly how it's done, and it takes a lot of patience. But I'd urge people, particularly Beatles fans, to just go back to that and have a listen to it and think about every minute, every minute the number nine voice and this piano comes in, and it's exactly on the minute, which can't be an accident. Hmm. And there's one in particular which is, has got sounds of war, and you can hear flames. 
and it's very, very interesting, but it's bridging to some extent the commercial with the avant-garde, and I think that's pretty effective. Well, there are lots of good ideas that came out of the middle of the 20th century avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Um, although because it's such an experimental period, there's a lot of dross necessarily. When you're experimenting, most of your experiments don't work. Yeah. <laughs> but out of that, there is a richness there that people have dipped into and it's spawned a lot of interesting work. I said earlier on, I think the avant-garde is dead. And I think that's right. It's sort of, you know, the very term avant-garde suggests, you know, the, the front line of progress and the, the very idea, the modernist idea, the sort of enlightenment idea of progress well we're now in we've taken the postmodern turn um so the very idea of a front line of progress is not really something that makes sense anymore but out of that middle of the 20th century set of experimentation and trying to push things forward into the unknown a lot of interesting things came out of that yeah of course avant-garde translates as cutting edge i think or forward march something like that or vanguard i think is obviously supposed to mean progressive. Yeah. So it takes for granted some process of history that's leading somewhere, doesn't it? So that's a very enlightenment yeah. kind of idea. It's all broken down now. And I think that's to the good. You've got so many people creating art, dipping into whatever they want to, including ideas that were in that melting pot of that time. Yeah. I suppose the term for English speakers would put people off because they'd immediately think using a French word is pretentious because well, it is. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an English, yeah, I'm an English language teacher, as you know, and mm. I do a lesson on using French words in English to have a particular effect, usually sophisticated or like romantic. It's like, would you rather say to your loved one au revoir or see you later? <laughs> yeah. Or would you rather give them a bouquet of flowers or a bunch of flowers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose you've got to try and get through the fact that high art is going to seem pretentious whatever <laughs> you know yes i suppose so because it so often is in reality yeah yeah mm-hmm. it is yeah. Okay, one thing I wanted to say about, I mentioned about the postmodern turn, I just want to make it clear for people that I'm not a through and through postmodernist. I think the extreme postmodernism that says there's no truth is really mistaken. But I think there are things to learn from it. And, you know, there is that famous phrase that by Jean-Francois Lyotard that uh, at its essence, it is incredulity towards meta narratives. It is that questioning the big story. And in many cases, that can be very helpful. In this case, it is. It questions that big story of progress in the the arts that it's definitely leading somewhere you think well where's it leading maybe there isn't this big progress maybe we can go in whatever direction we like and uh, i think some level of postmodern sensibility can be helpful in critiquing some of these meta-narratives um just thought i'd put that out there <laughs> in certain circles it's a dirty word and i think because of the extreme angle on it which is incoherent of course mm. okay well earlier on we were talking about TV as an aspect of consumerism and propaganda and things like that. And one of the songs of recent times that I know struck you and certainly struck me as well that you want to talk about is Company Store by Dissident Prophet. Um, Do you want to say something about that song? Yeah, I mean, it was really just um, about corporations, more or less. Yeah, we've talked before about that documentary, haven't we? The Corporation Canadian documentary. The lyrics, uh, I've got a future, it's looking bright, it's like a barcode, it's black and white. I've got a credit card, I've got a phone, the chips are coming down, I'm like a dog with a bone, which is great stuff. I spend money I don't have to buy things I don't need to show my friends, impress my neighbours. They ain't watching because they're watching TV. Mm. So he's uh, doing two things at the same time. He's saying, number one, I'm trying to impress my neighbours, but number two, it doesn't matter because they're watching TV. (laughs) He's almost making two points. He says, I owe my soul to the company store, slave or free, rich or poor. And obviously it's clear that there are certain sort of chains that we're 
What's the word? Help me out. Born with? Uh... Yeah, yeah, or enslaved with, basically, these chains. And that by participating in the system, which, as we said earlier, is inevitable until there is a change on it, you don't realise how, how much you're actually binded by the, the things that you're forced to do just to exist in the system, to be a, a relevant existing human being, you know. Mm. But I thought that was a great song. And again, it, it's a likeable song as well. It's a catchy song. Yeah, it's a great song. You've interviewed I, I have. Yeah. I did, in fact, interview the band, yeah. I th- and I have to say, I think their music is really high quality. Um, I think it's a great pity that it's not you know, widely known, but that's the way these things go. Yeah. How did you find them? Because I haven't actually listened to that episode. Do they seem angry? Do they seem... What kind of people were they? That's all I was going to say. They seem very pleasant, actually. Um, they're a Christian band, mm-hmm. and uh, the styles that they dip into, it's that sort of punk post-punk new wave kind of sound but they're open to all sorts of sounds but that's the basis of their sound which connects with me because i'm of that kind of generation yeah but i think the quality of their musical ideas and the quality of their lyrics combined are really great i'm often listening to their music and i know people have you know emailed me and said oh thank you for interviewing them i'm glad to have discovered their music so again if people haven't heard that interview with distant prophet do go and also had an interview with andy jennings the lyricist and lead singer as well before that Mm. in which we played quite a lot of their music so do go and listen to those i highly recommend their output of course this brings us to truth music now yeah. <laughs> that, that phrase the truth movement's a, a dodgy one we talked about that a lot yeah um, but, you know, we're, we're stuck with it so this tradition um is continuing in different ways because we're in a different era um and there are lots of examples that we have here um i mean I particularly wanted to mention Danielson742, who's a YouTuber who does these songifications of news reports and statesmen speaking and that kind of thing, and, and things in popular culture as well. He does it so well. I mean, I used one called We Were United. It has an alternative title, I Killed Osama Bin Laden, and it's this songification of Obama's mm. public announcement following the so-called assassination of Osama Bin Laden, um, with all its pomposity and mm. uh, taking credit for something that probably didn't even happen anyway. And uh, the way it's done, it's just brilliant how he yeah. chops up the speech to put in uh, Obama's mouth the taking of credit for this um in a sense he was taking credit for it but it makes it takes that to the nth degree um and it's also a good piece of music as well and i used that for one of my podcasts where i did a sort of critique of that event and he's done other great stuff as well he did uh, a songification of obama's victory speech 2008 with the yes we can <laughs> and again it's sort of the whole style is really cool and, and upbeat and it's got kind of a pop soul sound with an electric organ and a, a wah-wah guitar you know <laughs> yeah. it's that poking fun really at the uh, the hubris of it all and so i think he does that really well danielson 742 do recommend that youtube channel yeah good stuff yeah this is one called uh, when the president talks to god and uh, we briefly mentioned, I think I briefly mentioned that earlier. It's about this idea that George Bush actually said publicly that God told him to invade Iraq. And there was a lot of talk, of course, because Tony Blair was a professed uh, practicing Christian as well. Yes. But it's the idea that if you say that, oh, the, that God told me to invade Iraq, how is anyone going to actually disprove that? How's <laughs> yeah. anyone going to say, well, no, he didn't? Well, he said, well, yes, he did. I heard him. You know, how are you going to disprove that? It's impossible. The whole idea of propagating a war, you can't propagate it on something that isn't at least provable. Absolutely. Anyway, I mean, the the lyrics, while they pick which countries to invade, which Muslim souls still can be saved, I guess God just calls a spade a spade. 
And then does he ever think that maybe he's not, that that voice is just inside his head when he kneels next to the presidential bed when the president talks to God? And it's a kind of a sort of ramshackle acoustic blues, again, thinking about what genres are effective. Because it is quite ramshackle, it's almost, in a way, it almost reflects what might be going on in what might have been going on in President Bush's head. <laughs> right, indeed, yes, yes. Okay, speeches, I, clearly, clearly there's some confusion going on there. Absolutely, anyway. and I, I've said in podcasts before that I'm highly dubious of George W. Bush's Christian faith. I have to say I am. Everything yeah. that I've heard about him um, suggests that it's not genuine. That's the impression I get, that it's all part of this, well, two things really, the civil religion notion, but also mm. the deliberate courting by the neocons of conservative Christians for the purposes of political gain. I tend to think it's all part of that. So oh, if he sure. says God told him to do something, I'm thinking, really? What kind of God do you even believe in, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah. And the other one was, um, I mean, we haven't talked about rap. If anyone wants to listen to sort of rap or hip hop that's very hard hitting, I, I direct them to Public Enemy, hmm. who emerged in the 80s and 90s. And Fight the Power is one of their most famous songs. But of course, the thing with rap is that it's poetic in a way, but you can be more direct. Because I think when you sing lyrics very directly, unless you're very, very skillful, it, it, it doesn't hit quite as hard. Hmm. Just give you a few of these lyrics. This, there's a fellow called Immortal Technique who's very much a truther musician, I guess you call it. And he had a song called Cause of Death, and I'll just read you a couple of verses. I see the world for what it is beyond the white and black, the way the government downplays historical facts, because the United States sponsored the rise of the Third Reich, just like the CIA trained terrorists to fight, build bombs and sneak box cutters onto a flight, which is obviously a 9-11 reference. My words will expose George Bush and Bin Laden as two separate parts of the same seven-headed dragon, and you can't fathom the truth, so you don't hear me. And then, uh, and just so conservatives don't take it to heart, I don't think Bush did it because he isn't that smart. This is talking about 9-11 again. He's just a stupid puppet taking orders on his cell phone from the same people that sabotaged Senator Wellstone. And that's referring to uh, Paul Wellstone, who had a very suspicious death. And that's worth Googling if anyone doesn't know about that. Very pointed, very direct. Yeah. I wanted to mention the George W. Bush singers who were on the subject of Bush. Yeah. I'm not sure they exist anymore. I suppose their remit has expired. Yeah. But they're quite a favourite of mine, actually. They're really sarcastic. They have this sort of call and response, choral singing, very cheerful often. And they take clips from his speeches, often where he has a gaffe. Yeah. And uh, they just sing about it really cheerfully as if it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. Um, and there's one favourite of mine, George W. sings his initial thoughts on Iraq. So I do suggest people listen to that. That's online. And there's a great video they did about Bush's fluffing up over some words. He said about Americans giving 4,000 hours of service to the country. Mm. And he said 4,000 years. <laughs> Oh and uh, they just completely lampoon that one very effectively with lots of dancing and smiling and it's it's great um he deserved that kind of send up really he was almost too easy to lampoon though wasn't he oh he was i agree he didn't need to make an effort almost <laughs> no no that's true and i don't want to give the impression this is all about the states i mean yeah. um just a lot of culture is US based, of yeah. course, and that's what you end up talking about this. Uh, but yeah. I mean, over here we have uh, Cassette Boy, um, and he's done some great things. One called Cassette Boy versus the Snoopers Charter, and he took clips from 
because she's now Prime Minister, but then Home Secretary uh, Theresa May's speeches and David Cameron's speeches as well, to do with this investigatory powers bill, which is now an act, unfortunately, 2016. Mm. Anyway, you combine these clips, um, and the way he combines them says more truth than the, the speeches actually did when they were given, you know. It's almost like it reveals the real intentions of what those speeches were saying, and he sets it to every step you take by the police oh, yeah. oh every breath you take yeah. sorry every breath you take that's it yeah that's right yeah, yeah. and it's all to do with you know snooping on your private information oh, absolutely that's... brilliant and he did another one which i can't uh, talk about in great detail but called getting piggy with it regarding david cameron's university indiscretions which was very oh, yeah, as well. of course yeah. <laughs> i was thinking don't stand so close to me by the police might be a good one as well yes <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> But I mean, people should go and listen to that one particularly. It must have taken countless hours to choose those choice bits of speech, but it was brilliantly done. Mm. And I think we've got here, I think it's an Australian band. Um, people may correct me, but I think they are Black Hats. And uh, they did an excellent song several years ago called Iraqistan. Let me just give you some of uh, the lyrics here. I mean, it's a brilliant song. Mm, yeah, yeah, the music's great as well. Afghanis in Afghanistan, Vietnamese in Vietnam, Iraqis in Iraqi land, we bombed them all. And it goes on, for their prosperity, freedom and democracy. When you play the world's saviour, someone might return the favour. Well, now we've got remote control drones. Talk about working from home. <laughs> Shepherd boys, watch your back. It's the way it goes when drones attack. 7,000 nukes in place. Now that's insurance, just in case. I don't want to spoil the party. Ask those kids in Nagasaki. I mean, it's just really great lyrics, I think. And, um, you know, I just love the way it pokes at that neocon mentality and also the xenophobia that they deliberately tap into, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I love that song. And they're still active, I believe. Yeah, the only other song I wanted to mention was one called Bradley Manning, which was by a guy called Chaz McCombs. And, of course, Bradley Manning became Chelsea Manning, and he's actually due to be released. It's one of the, hate to be cynical, but it's one of those things that presidents do at the end of their term because it means that they're going to be remembered fondly. But uh, it was very interesting because all that happened. Bradley Manning, as she was then, when she went to trial, was actually exactly the same time as Snowden. And I always find it curious that why did the mainstream media put so much on uh, Snowden and not on Manning? And I couldn't really, didn't really have an answer for it, actually. But there's a song called, yeah, it's just called Bradley Manning. And again, it's a good song as well. So, um, and it's a very interesting case as well. Well, I think all these ones are mentioned. They're all good songs as well. We've got to make that point. Exactly. We're not urging listeners to listen to them just for the message. You know, you'll enjoy the song as well, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, there's another one I just had here. It's a bit of a shame because they seem to have disappeared, called The Janet Street Preachers. <laughs> and they had a great song called Dancing on Our Graves. Yeah. Uh, off a, an album seems, as far as I can tell, to be their only album called Moral Hazard. They still have a MySpace page, but... I didn't seem to be able to play anything on there so i think they've gone inactive mm. but it's a great song i just love the way the music works it reminds me just reminds me of the passenger by iggy pop um it has that sort of repetitiousness about it oh, yeah. but it's all about government big business exploiting people the media is untrustworthy with this sort of neo-punk kind of feel to it um it's a great song but it's a shame they don't seem to be active at the moment well we could go on couldn't we there are lots of other examples but i think we need to draw this to a close yeah so, well, we've gone all the way around the subject and we've touched on all sorts of different aspects to it. And, you know, I think there's a, I hope there's some kind of coherence to it. Um, I'm hoping that the more overt outward 
political stance can be seen to connect to the inward in the sense that, as Yoko Ono and John Lennon were saying, you've got to change the inside if you're going to try and change anything in the outside world. So I think they do they do connect. And OK, it's a message that goes on being said, but I think it remains true. Um <laughs> So it all, all that really remains is for me to ask you whether you have any mm-hmm. artistic plans for the future with your singing and your writing at the Freethinker 75 blog. Yeah, well, as I said, I'm currently working on a second album. Really, a lot of it is just for my own pleasure. It's Some of it is old songs that I wanted to get good recording of. But I have been writing recently and I've been trying to use this platform of music to you know, try and do something that's a bit more thought provoking. Because in the past, I'd always sort of separated my writing as in prose, blog posts, etc., for my music. So I'm trying to meld them. But really, in conclusion, all I want to say to people is please have a look at my blog post. There's absolutely zero commercial gain in it. It's nothing to do with that. It's for my own pleasure at writing and just trying to, you know, bring stuff up and make people think. And on the blog post, I put links to all these songs. And really, I just love people to listen to these songs. I mean, it's such amazing music, great stuff. And the message goes along with the quality of the music and the content. Yeah, and you will give me the link to your first album, which people can listen yep. to. That would be great. And I do recommend people go and read that blog post. It is interesting. Lots of links, as you say, that you give there, and lots of interesting thoughts. One of the really interesting things about it is how it shows that there's some continuity between what happened in the past and what's happening now with questioning the state of things in the world. And yet there's also a discontinuity because it's often been said, hasn't it, that back in the day there was a lot more activism that was out there on the streets where a lot of the activism today is happening online. And although more people are being reached, it's a kind of um, diminishing return situation, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. (laughs) More people being reached, but more people being less active. So it's an interesting connection and yet disconnection at the same time. So all those kinds of questions are embedded within your article, and I do recommend people go to read it and look at the links, and it's an enjoyable experience going through those art forms that are there. Yeah, lovely. I always enjoy our chats. I always feel better, actually, after we've talked. Maybe we get stuff off our chest at the same time as hopefully entertaining your listeners. Well, let's ho- hopefully. I hope some people out there do feel the same. Yeah. Get some emails from people saying they do enjoy these chats, so it's great to have caught up with you again after, well, about 18, 19 months. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we'll do it again. I'll, I'll think we of a good topic. Great. Truth. How about Truth Theatre? No, no, that was a joke. That was a joke. How, how many things could we put after the word truth, I wonder? Or maybe we could have a silent conversation. In honour of John Cage. Well, that's an interesting one. I'll, I, I shall ponder yeah. that. Yeah, I shall ponder that. One. Yes, yes. Well, let listeners decide the length. Oh, maybe. <laughs> yes. Whatever that's we do, we're idea. going for cheesy titles in future. <laughs> yeah. Persuade truths. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks ever so much, Anthony, for coming on the show again. And as I say, look forward to speaking to you again. Okay. Thanks, Julian.